poem called Reflections After the June 12th March for Disarmament, the African-American poet Sonia Sanchez begins with this chant of memory. And this is just a partial reading of the first page of that poem. I have come to you tonight through the Delaney years, the Du Bois years, the B.T. Washington years, the Ropeson years, the Garvey years, the Depression years, the you can't eat or sit or live, just die here years, the civil rights years, the black power years, the black nationalist years, the affirmative action years, the liberal years, the neoconservative years. I have come to say that those years were not in vain. The ghosts of our ancestors searching this American dust for rest were not in vain. Black women walking their lives in clots were not in vain. The years walked sideways in a forsaken land were not in vain. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem, and I just read a few lines from it. Sometimes I read this poem to my students, but even as I am reading it, I know that many of them do not know the names, the historical references, the suffering it recalls, and the redemption it seeks. They can feel it, and they do but so many do not know the specificity and therefore the deeper meanings. Then too, there is an essay by Adrienne Rich in which she reflected on the second wave of feminism as it seemed to feel it had to reinvent everything. She wrote about the ways in which feminist politics have been turned back again and again, interrupted and lost as it were, quote, because we had no way of handing on a collective female vision. I tell stories in my classes, and I know that in the stories is where the students most connect with what we're trying to teach. I began writing intimate politics thinking that my own history could be a link from one generation to the next, a way of making history intelligible and personal and political to a new generation. I thought that in telling the stories of the movements for peace and social justice, civil rights, women's liberation, for the visibility of gay and lesbian peoples, it would help. I wanted women and men to know that we, we, are the makers of our own histories and our own personal lives. Tony Cade Bambara used to say, black people walk in and out of the front doors of their own lives. That great numbers of people mobilized, organized, persistent, and willing to take at least some risks can and often do play a decisive role in all kinds of movements for freeing political prisoners, defending constitutional liberties, ending war, and so on. And most of all, I wanted future generations to know the potential for transforming our own lives, for building community, for seeking to ourselves become whole from all of the traumas that each of us has experienced. As a feminist, I wanted to engage the dynamic of the personal and the political to show through my own life how I could project a public, public persona on the one hand, such as on the Berkeley campus, and be a psychological basket case on the other at the same time. And I wanted to also show how the personal reveals the political by demarking and exploring what I call in the introduction to the book, a politics of trauma. By a politics of trauma, I mean all the forms of abuse and maltreatment that people experience, whether based on gender, class, sexuality, racial oppression, anti-Semitism, anti-Islamism, or any other system of domination. 
I did not know that in writing the childhood section of the memoir, I would recover such terrible memories of childhood sexual abuse. When this happened, I stopped writing, of course, for quite a while to gather myself, so to speak. I worked with an extraordinarily skilled therapist. My partner was emotional bedrock, and my children embraced me. I got through it. I made the decision to go back to the memoir and to peel open my life, to reveal what once had been unspeakable in the belief that in understanding a politics of trauma, uh, we could deepen our understanding of relationships of power. Finally, as I moved on to a spiritual path, I began to see the interconnections between the personal and the political in a new way. Our capacity to awaken to a deeper understanding of our own minds, to learn how to contain and dissolve anger, to make ourselves whole, seemed deeply intertwined with our capacity to engage in political movements in the most constructive and beneficial ways. In breaking all kinds of silences in the memoir, I wanted to say none of us escapes. Silence is corrosive and denial is fatal to both individuals and movements. While Intimate Politics is a memoir with archival purposes, it is also written with an activist and spiritual heart. May our discussions today lead to a fruitful dialogue about the political, the personal, and the spiritual present, and our ability to change both ourselves and the world. Above all, to end suffering. Thank you so much, and thank you to the panel. My sisters and my brothers all, good afternoon. I want you to know that it is, it's really a joy and it's a privilege for me to be a part of this discussion. Discussion that is inspired by Professor Bettina Apthaker's amazing and grace-filled book, Intimate Politics. When my sister friend Bettina asked if I would read her book and offer a comment on it. Of course, I immediately said that I would, expecting, of course, that I would be reading. Bettina wrote the book, and so I would be reading an extraordinary work. It didn't matter what the particular issues were, I knew that her extraordinary command of language would give me a, a very special experience. What I didn't know was that intimate politics would contain revelations that would hurt me that would hurt me ever so deeply. In fact, as the old folk would say in the community that I grew up in, in Jacksonville, Florida, they would say, I was about to, to have the kind of hurt that cuts to the bone. But relief came 
Relief came to me as it surely came to other readers of this highly important book. For Professor Apbecker's stunning analysis of personal and political situations that are highly complex and horrific encourages us to do no less in order to understand what may appear to be too wretched to tackle, too unspeakable to voice. Because through many years of protracted struggle, Bettina Apteka finds peace. We too are offered the possibility that each of us can also recover from the kind of nightmares that haunt us all around the clock. When I finished reading Intimate Politics, I asked myself this question. Why? Why did Bettina Apteka's book, her memoir, have such a profound effect on me? The remainder of my prepared remarks center on my response to that question. I think that I've been deeply moved by Bettina's story, her authentic story, because of the particular ways in which I am connected to her narrative. There are three such powerful connections, and I want to share them with you. The first is this. Bettina Apteka's memoir describes her association with eight movements, each of which was and is a call for some form of social justice. Eight movements that I have been or am involved in or that I have some knowledge of. I refer to the Communist Party of the United States of America, the free speech movement, the civil rights movement of the 1960s, the black power movement, that we got to free our sister Angela movement. <laughs> I refer to the peace movement, particularly the struggle against the war in Vietnam the feminist movement with its academic arm as expressed in women's studies, and the movement for the rights of people who are lesbians, gay, bisexual, and transgender. Intimate politics exposes a point that I know from my own experiences and my own observations of these social movements. It is this. There are no perfect ones. All movements for social justice suffer from flaws, some of which are deeper than others. I also have learned this powerful lesson that is front and center in intimate politics. Here's the lesson. 
that being the victim of one form of oppression does not, unfortunately, immune one from oppressing others. Yes, black folks can and do practice heterosexism. More, I assure you, than a few white women can and do practice racism. Some gay white men can and do practice sexism. It seems to me that the reason that an oppressed person is so deeply hurt when he or she is victimized by someone from another oppressed community is because there is such an act of betrayal involved. A betrayal of the victimizer's own experience with being a victim. And there's a betrayal of the idealized hope that there is a form of solidarity among all who are oppressed. In intimate politics, I came to see yet again how I, too, have some forms of power and privilege. And I am reminded of my responsibility to deal with each of them. While I know the bitter stings of racism and of sexism, I must also deal with my own power and privilege as a heterosexual, as an able-bodied person, as someone who is upper middle class, and someone who is of the Christian faith. A second personal connection that I have to my sister Bettina Aptheker's memoir centers around sexual violence. Let me share this chapter from my own story. On a particular day in 2001, my close sister friend and co-author, Dr. Beverly Guy Sheftall, and I were working on our book that is entitled Gender Talk, The Struggle for Women's Equality in African American Communities. Beverly was at her computer in her upstairs study, and I was at my laptop in her dining room in what had become a makeshift second study. When I screamed out to Beverly to come downstairs as quickly as she could, she thought that I had surely suffered some major accident. She came quickly and found me physically unharmed, but she heard me say this, I cannot do this book unless I tell my experience with sexual violence. It was a highly emotional moment as Beverly Guy Sheftall responded by saying, if you will tell your story, I will tell mine. Between that afternoon when we pledged to each tell the story, we wished we could wipe away forever 
Between that moment and the publication of Gender Talk, we had countless conversations about the pain, the anguish, and the anger induced in me by what my ex-husband had done and by what an ex-partner had done to Beverly. There was even that moment when I tried to tell myself, well, I didn't really have to write all of that. I didn't have to write this truth. For wasn't it, wasn't it going to be more painful and more embarrassing to tell this truth than whatever relief and healing I could get from the pain of the telling. But in a chapter entitled, The Personal is Political, Beverly Gosheftal and I each did serious harm to the demons who were haunting us. <laughs> During the book tour that followed the publication of Gender Talk, in almost every setting, some woman would thank us for writing of our horrific experiences. For in doing so, this woman would say, it was as if we had given her permission to name the demon that was tormenting her. And thus, true healing could begin for that sister as it had for Beverly and for me. Few, if any, emotions are as devastating as betrayal by individuals you trust, you think you know, and you deeply love. Bettina Aptheker and countless women and girls know of what I speak here. And yes, so do countless boys and men. For sexual molestation, rape, and domestic violence committed by a parent, a family member, a lover, a spouse, or a friend is betrayal by one who above all others one should have been able to trust. There's another deep connection that I have with Bettina Apecker's lived experiences with incest and with rape, a connection that flows from the position that I've been so privileged to hold as the president of the only two historically black colleges for women in the United States, Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, and Bennett College for Women in Greensboro, North Carolina. When the young women come and the not-so-young women also come, they are bringing all kinds of luggage. It is luggage in every conceivable color and size and condition. It is luggage that is easy to see it is luggage that can be emptied and put away. 
what cannot be so easily seen or dealt with is the baggage that my sisters bring with them. The baggage from experiences with incest, with rape, and other forms of sexual violence. For my sisters of Bennett, for my sisters of Spellman, for my sisters of every place on earth, how I hope that they will find the help to do as Bettina Aptheker has done and as I have done as well. And that is to claim one's baggage as the first step toward emptying it and putting it away. The third and final personal connection with intimate politics that I want to raise here is that I knew Herbert Aptheker. I knew Faye Aptheker. And I admired, respected, and loved them both. Now that the worst sides of Faye and Herbert are exposed, I am challenged to figure out how I will view each of them. How am I to reconcile my memories of Faye Aptheker as a personally gentle but politically strong woman? How do I reconcile my memories with Bettina's clear descriptions of her own mother? How can I place within the same frame my image of Dr. Herbert Aptheker, the scholar activist who taught me so much about American history, including American slavery? How do I put in the same frame that image with his daughter's description of her father's own enslavement to a sexual perversion. This is not the first time that I've had to wrestle with how to relate to someone whose contributions to our world are marred by a serious personal flaw or indeed a pathology. Is this not the challenge as we look at the President Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky saga? Where should we put Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s womanizing in relation to his enormous contributions to our struggle for civil and human rights? Should I stop? admiring Diego Rivera's murals because of his sexual, ex sexual exploits <coughs> excuse me, that included seducing Frida's own sister. In a work entitled Mad at Miles, our sister writer Pearl Clegg asked how she can possibly continue to listen 
to the music of this genius of black improvisational music called jazz when Miles Davis was such a misogynist. What are we to do with these fallen heroes, with men who betray our views of them as personally admirable as well as politically, intellectually, and artistically creative and solid. And yes, there are fallen sheroes too. Women whose public legacy is in contradiction with their personal fallacies. What I find helpful, as I think did our teacher, scholar, activist, Bettina, is to use is to use our own feminist analysis to subject such reprehensible behavior to a feminist analysis that lifts up what patriarchy, class privilege, racism, all systems of domination can produce. <coughs> I want now to bring closure on my prepared remarks and I want to do so by, by expressing my gratitude to Sister Bettina for a book that so deeply connects to some of my own experiences and I'm sure to yours. And so I want to use an old-fashioned expression, one that the elders would use in the community that I grew up in, Jacksonville, Florida, when the elders wanted to say how really, really grateful they were for something they would say, as I now say to my sister Bettina, for intimate politics, I'm much obliged. <laughs> I was so touched by Bettina Apdecker's book. And then outside, I was touched by the gathering of women. And then in here, I've been touched by every person's life, what I do know and what I will come to know and what is known just by being amongst them. What I know about my own life and what I have done to be present with my own self. It is work. And we are all being asked today to do it. I wondered if Bettina wrote it so that we would feel that we have the permission to do that very thing. Did you? There's something about rooms full of people that I really love. And I like to play with them because we sit in them and we listen and we engage whoever is speaking. And sometimes we forget to engage one another. Could you just turn to the person next to you and say whatever? Like, hello? <laughs> so, so in that simple gesture of connection, there is intimacy. Intimacy 
I can't give you a standard definition, but I feel that it does bring hope. I felt as if when I was reading Bettina's book that I was sitting with her, perhaps in her kitchen over tea, and she was telling me stories. And they brought up for me stories. And so when Janetta was speaking, I was brought to tears. But I knew I had to stand up here so I didn't cry them all out. Did you feel that too? That's good. Because it isn't just being here that's important. It's what we do when we leave. What will we do? Right now, in this moment, please send your well wishes, or if you pray, your prayers. If you send blessings, do that. To the little girls and boys, to the women and men who are suffering, in the ways that we're describing today and will continue to talk about, but also because of all of the intersections we are faced with. Could you just take a moment and send some of your wonderful and great well wishes out to this world? And then bring one of those wishes back to yourself and keep it for you. So that when you leave, you remember that you do have not only the permission, but the stamina to face the things or help others face the things that must be faced. We are all connected. And I love it when we first connect and we giggle or laugh or or. Whatever happens when we meet a human being for the first time. But our world is suffering from disconnect. From the connection to electronics. And virtual life. Bettina's book is about living real life. And I just absolutely loved what she said about bearing witness. Are you familiar with the term? Bearing witness. She said that a teacher friend of hers told her that it is, or told many, that it is shedding light all over something so that no one can say that it didn't happen. Before we got here, a group of us came together because we didn't know where we were going. Um, Someone mentioned to me that there were some responses about Bettina's book. How could she write this? And my response was, how could she not? I know from personal experience because... I grew up with an alcoholic father who beat my mother, and I was the intervening human being when I was this high, regularly. I was also raped by a dear friend. I know that it is important 
for me to bear witness so that I can stand here and complete sentences and smile and mean it and be kind and be compassionate and be ready to face the next day in this world on the mornings when I wake up. It is important that we speak our truth. It's in the silence that the demons not only live, but they multiply. It is incumbent upon us all to do something in our own way. It's maybe not a book. Maybe it's not even an article. <laughs> maybe it's a journal entry, like the ones my students at Cal State University in the East Bay write in my classes. I make them mandatory. Why? Because we won't write what we really believe and feel unless we are encouraged. After that first statement of mandatory, the students love it. Yesterday, I promised Bettina I would tell this story. She doesn't know what it is yet. But she said she'd listen. Yesterday, I was working on, um, on campus, and I'm working on a, on a project, and I'm interviewing some of the most amazing young women students on campus. And after we finished an interview, I, I told these two students where I was that I had to work during the weekend, and I was going to the University of California at Santa Cruz. And they said, oh, yeah, why? And I explained where I was coming. They go, whoa, that's deep. And I said, yeah, it is. The book is deep and profound and compassionately written. And on the one hand, I love both and. I just love it. <laughs> on the one hand, the author is talking about something so painful and then in the next breath is talking about her love for her father. One of the two women who was sitting there, she's a Pakistani woman and Muslim. By the way, she chose to cover her hair on September 12th. Her father feared for her life, and she did it anyway. As I talked about the book Intimate Politics, in that intimate, connected setting, just the three of us, she said to me, I'm so glad you asked us to write journal entries. I've continued to do it. Last night, I got home and opened my emails, and there was an email from her titled, the journal entry I never turned in. Let it go beyond your shirt. Let it sink in. What she said was the story of her family and the trauma in her family from Pakistan to Canada to the United States. All kinds of things happened. And then she said, and that was one trouble that I've come to resolve. 
but it is being a Muslim woman who is lesbian that troubles me so. Perhaps an independent woman like me, yes, and Muslim. Perhaps a gay man and Muslim, but a lesbian Muslim woman? Come on, she said. What am I to do? How can I speak my truth? What I know is that you've given me permission, she was speaking about me, to speak it, and I'm thanking you for it in this email because I need to have people I can say this to. She went on to say that she quietly lives her life and has a partner who loves her dearly, but she has no connection to her family because she cannot tell them the truth. She ended by saying, thank you very much, and tell the author that I thank her very much for her book. This is the journal entry I never turned in. I've been thinking about that. And on the way down here, I was talking with my friend Valerie about it. It's so important, not only that we tell the story, but that we be there for people. We be a resting place, a big lap for the people that need to speak to us. That we be a non-judgmental, compassionate presence. It calls for bigness. It calls for resolution in ourselves. It calls for being open and aware and awake. I was in the Black Panther Party, as Gail mentioned, for a good portion of my teenage and adult life. And in the time I spent in prison, I came to understand the light and shadows of Erica. That's where it starts, folks. When you were talking about the one way that we are, Johnetta, out here, and the way we are behind the scenes, sort of, the names you mentioned brought me to think of people that I know and what people now call the Black Power Movement. Um, I was in an organization called the Vanguard, and here we were, the vanguard of the movement, so to speak, with all of this paradox. We human beings are paradoxical beings. And the moment we're ready to blame someone, we're forgetting where we've been, what we've done, what we are capable of, what we still can do. The mindfulness of our own capacity to harm can make us humble and great people. Just holding that awareness that we make a choice in every moment to be in resonance with living beings. I really don't think anything I'm saying is going over your heads. 
we get in rooms and we talk about political. And I love Bettina's book because she said, but the intimate political, who are we? What have we become? How are we continuing to become? I spoke on a panel a year and a half ago, maybe two years now, I, I don't remember, called Spirituality and Social Activism, or Spiritual Activism and Social Justice. And I was so touched that this group of people would put this panel together because what I witnessed in the Black Panther Party quite often was that we were serving the people, body, and soul, and we were harming each other, body and soul. Some of us, not all of us. As Johnetta said, there is no organization that goes without this paradoxical existence. It's phenomenal. And the greatness doesn't fade because of the harmful things. We can grow great if we face both. Yesterday in class, a class, it's an introduction to feminism class called Perspectives on Woman, Women, a young woman from India told this story. Bettina says she loves stories because they teach. I love them too. And this woman said, I found out because I'm taking this class and I've been talking more to my mother about her life as a woman. It's interesting when we get to see our parents as separate and unique, complete individuals separate from us, which is also what this book is about that Bettina wrote. This young woman said to the class, and I was speaking with my mother a week ago, a week ago, she says, and she told me that when I was born, the family members, including my father, said, you should have aborted. And she touched her heart. She said, I was so hurt by this that at some point in my existence, I was not wanted. And then she said that the doctors in the hospital came to her mother on the day of her birth and said, we're sorry, we have something to tell you. And the mother I'm a mother, so my heart fluttered too. The mother said, tell me what it, is my child fine? Is my child harmed? Is, she, is my child ill? And the doctor looked at her and shook her head and said, it's a girl. When she told that story yesterday, I was speechless. And the classroom fell silent. And all I could say is, I am just so glad you are on this planet. I am so glad you are alive. I am so glad you were not aborted. I am so happy that you were the girl who became this woman that you are today. I didn't think about it. I didn't hesitate. 
I didn't say, I'm a teacher. I'm not supposed to. I just. I told this story because there was a point in time where I would hesitate. How intimate should I become? How clear in what I feel should I be? Which story is okay to tell here? It doesn't really matter. That student came to me after class and thanked me for affirming her life. She is amazing, and she is affirming other people's lives already. And I told her, your story will help others who feel that it's not okay to be a girl. It's not okay to be a woman. I could tell you stories all afternoon. That's not my purpose here. It's to remind us that we must remember history in the big sense and remember our own personal histories and resolve what we can about them and step forward for others. Be there. How many of us work with children? How many of us work with young people? How many of us know what they're facing? I'm, not, I'm youthful, but I'm not a young person anymore. I'm saying this specifically to a part of the population in this room. It is incumbent that we make a way for little boys to grow into men who do not abuse, who do not molest, who do not harm because they feel harmed or powerless or whatever the reasons. We must raise up the generation now and the ones to come so our world won't wither. We must raise girls to feel absolutely secure in themselves and honest. We must teach them the word no as well as the word yes. Sounds really simple, and it will take all of us to do it. And if you would do one thing, and I do this on behalf of a young woman I met when she was in the eighth grade 10 years ago. She said to me, wherever you go, Miss Huggins, you tell your friends and the people you see that it's about my life. And if they want to do something real, tell them I said they need to really love young folks. They need to really, really care because people don't care about us. And then we get blamed for how the world is. We've had our moment, many of us. We've had our moments. It's important for us to be as generous as we possibly can with everyone we meet. And I don't mean that we're supposed to be nice. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean that we can give of ourselves and we can continue to learn and we can continue to grow. There really isn't anything more that I 
can say about Bettina's brave, her bravery, and her brave book. And I hope that those of you who are intending to write something will do it. Those of you who need to say something will say it. Those of you who need help in healing something will find that way. And then step out and step forward in our world and be of use. As you are already doing, continue to be of use. One thing I learned from my life experiences is this. I tell myself this. You cannot give up. You cannot give in. You must continue to be present in your life with the people that you're with for as long as you breathe. And I feel no pressure when I tell myself that. I have been supported and all I can do is support. Thank you very much for listening and thank you so much for being present. And now we'll hear from Blanche. I, I, I'm just so deeply, deeply moved to be here, to be in this sacred space, to celebrate this sacred book. Um, I think I want to start by saying to Bettina, thank you. Thank you. Because for me, just personally, when Bettina called me, as she did some of her friends, would you read this book? Would you say something about it? Of course I would. And knew it would be, as Janetta said, fabulous. But it's a book of great surprise. And for me, the surprise was not what surprised some folks. For me, the surprise was in the generosity and love of forgiveness. That was, for me, the surprise. Imagine to feel so much. Life-affirming, freeing generosity and love. And it gave me pause. Because while I wasn't surprised about childhood abuse by people we love and admire, is I grew up with the assumption that there is childhood abuse. Literally, my grandfather. And so my mother told stories. And there was my Aunt Sylvia. And I grew up knowing about alcoholism, the family disease, and child abuse. And then, as a gymnast, I had a coach. Well, 
do I need to say more? I mean, is there an athlete in, Amer- in the world who hasn't had a coach, someone you learn from and trust and become anorectic for? Because you have to, as gymnasts do, you mean you got to be little. I mean... So I wasn't surprised. And then I started, and that's what Erica was talking about, I started getting these emails, you know, on port side um, and on the history net, news net, HNN. There's a daily burden. Um, And people were going nuts about, This big deal. What big deal? I mean, this perfectly ordinary in every girl's life, isn't it? And to read the, to read the male hysteria was like, I mean, I didn't know we were so deep into the misogynist dark ages, but how could I not know that? How could I not know that? I mean, look at the world we are living in. Arguably, the meanest moment in U.S. history since slavery with Christian fundamentalists and Muslim fundamentalists and Jewish fundamentalists and Hindu fundamentalists all declaring war to begin with against women. This is, this is beyond backlash. I mean, Susan Faludi, Pache, you know. I mean, this moment of insanity And one great teacher, writer, activist has the guts to tell the truth. And the world goes crazy. I mean, and I was very happy to be um, friends with, seems to me, the one guy who stood up, Jesse Lemish. Jesse Lemish, let's hear it for Jesse, who said, hey, guys, you know, he did a wonderful piece on HNN. Shh, don't talk about Herbert Apthecker. A wonderful piece. And this is by Jesse Lemish, who over the years has done so much to celebrate the contradictions of our lives. Herbert Apthecker, who wasn't allowed to teach at Yale, and it was Jesse Lemish who wrote this great article of Howard Cosell can teach at Yale, why can't Herbert Apthecker? <laughs> so, um, I always like to say my life was an accident, because all I ever cared about in my life was sports. And I was very good at many sports. And I was going to major in phys ed. 
And then I had an accident. A boy put a barbell at the end of a mat as I came out of a triple flip. It was one of those big inner city varsity celebrations. And I broke every ligament and muscle in my back. And then I couldn't major in phys ed. And then I had to take courses about other things. Um, uh, and then, uh, so every course I took, I, oh, that's interesting. So I majored in history, political science, and anthropology. Yay for answer at Hunter College, Hunter where, College. where I, uh, but you aren't teaching yet. Not yet. No. Um, in fact, in anthropology, I'm, and, and I went to graduate school at a place that gave me the biggest fellowship. That was how I chose. And my anthropo- it was an accident. My anthropology teacher, this great woman, Dorothy Cook Jensen, did you know her? She told me I was making a terrible mistake to go into international relations at Hopkins. One accident at Hunter College was that um, I became friends with a great poet named Audre Lorde. And, um, and so we remained friends forever. And Audre Lorde and... Uh, I'm really so happy. There are Wilf people here. There are wealth people here. And, uh, I mean, Audre Lorde is my first lover, but then I met Claire Koss at a wealth meeting. And we left our husbands for each other. That, wa- that wasn't an accident. That we were... We worked hard on that, actually. Um, But Audrey, um, we used to go to these peace marches and civil rights marches. And um, and when I was reading, I know Bettina likes to read poetry almost every time she um, speaks, she reads a poem. And I was very, as soon as I read this book, I thought, that's Audrey's, Audrey's poem, who said it was simple. And Audrey wrote this poem after a very wonderful peace march in New York City, about 1982, maybe it was the big anti-nuclear march. There are so many roots to the tree of anger that sometimes the branches shatter before they bear. Sitting in needicks, the women rally before they march, discussing their girls, the girls they hire to make them free. An almost white counterman passes a waiting brother to serve them first, and the ladies neither notice nor reject the slighter pleasures of their slavery. But I, who am bound by my mirror, as well as my bed, 
see causes in color as well as sex and sit here wondering which me will survive all these liberations. Audrey always edited her poems, and I like to tell my students every writer edits all the time, and every writer needs an editor. And I remember at one point this great poem, which I see here was 1970, so it wasn't the 1982 march. At one point, I remember this poem was, and I sit here wondering which of these liberations is going to kill me first. Either way, it seems to me to be the question for all of us at this moment when we no longer, in my opinion, and I, I have to say I teach police officers and firefighters at a place called John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And so whenever I say anything vaguely controversial, I say, in my opinion. <laughs> in my opinion, I usually say it three times because they, they wear guns to class. So, um, so I'm still here, and I've been there since 1967. Um, but one, one of the things that I'm very struck with now is that we no longer have the luxury, it seems to me, in my opinion, of separating our movements. We really need now one big movement for a couple of simple facts, beginning with survival. It's very clear that people must have more to live for than to die for. And it seems very clear to me that we're surrounded on a planet of abundance with water wars and oil wars and on this planet of abundance folks are starving to death and so we need a new movement a new united front if you will but a united front, one world movement for a one world situation without borders or boundaries or walls based on and based in human rights. Now, human rights is not just an airy-fairy phrase. It is rooted as... Eleanor Roosevelt said in the Magna Carta and in the New Deal, that momentary idea of the 1930s that folks had a right, a human right, to economic 
security and to health care and to housing and to education and then to civil liberties and civil rights and the right to travel. And this is all in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, passed on the 10th of December, 1948, but only partially ratified by the United States because it was divided into two covenants. And all of the economic and social covenants, which said everybody has a right to education, housing, work, vacations, health care, and so on, those were considered the Soviet-inspired covenants, the un-American covenants. And then the other things like everybody has the right to vote and to speak freely and there should be free press and assembly and religion and folks may not, must not, cannot be tortured or held without bail or indictment or subpoena, all those things that seem to be gone. And there's some irony at this moment that it was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, these two covenants, were ignored. Eisenhower fired Eleanor Roosevelt because he didn't want, John Foster Dulles didn't want to be committed to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So Eisenhower fired Eleanor Roosevelt in 1953. And the issue really never came up again until at the end of the Cold War in 1991, it was Mr. Baker who said to George Herbert Walker Bush, how about at the end of the Cold War, we ratify the Declaration of Human Rights? Now, you don't know that, do you? You know why? It's because the Republicans don't want any credit for it. But it was George Herbert Walker Bush who said, okay, let's finally ratify the civil and political covenant of the Universal Declaration. So at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. will stand for human rights. How's that? <laughs> now, I want to say from 1953 to the presidency of Jimmy Carter, human rights never came up. And Jimmy Carter brought human rights up, but half-heartedly, and when the Senate didn't pass it, he didn't push. Now, I don't want to attack Jimmy Carter because right now I love Jimmy Carter. <laughs> On the other hand, it was Jimmy Carter who gave us a big Brzezinski's decision to go into Afghanistan, I mean to have Afghanistan be the Soviets' war, their Vietnam. Remember that? The folks remember that? But he's better now. So 
one could do, you know, when you think about what kind of term paper you want to do about this presidency, somebody might do a Oedipal, the Oedipal history of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and uh, George War Bush. Oh, you want to stand for human rights, huh, Daddy? Wah! So, here we are. Now, I just want to get back a little bit to Bettina's book. (laughs) But I don't think I've really left Bettina's book very far because what I want to say is domestic violence and childhood abuse crosses all class, all political, all cultural, all religious divides. And in volume one of Eleanor Roosevelt, I write about Eleanor Roosevelt's father. People always ask me, how did she get that way? Her great ability to identify and work for people in want, and in need, and in trouble. And Eleanor Roosevelt would annually visit different women's prisons, the old Greenwich Village House of Detention. And I just want to say a word, our prisons obsolete, this wonderful, incredibly important book by Angela Davis. Everybody go get it. And Eleanor Roosevelt would go to visit women in prison, and she'd write to her friends, I could have been any one of the women on the inside. And I always wondered what that could mean. Maybe it meant she, too, could have killed her husband. (laughs) But it was really to understand her level of identification and empathy, we have to start with her father, who was such a drop-dead alcoholic, he dropped dead at 34. Now, we all know enough about alcoholism, the family disease, and some of us drink too much and we're already 70 or 80. How much do you have to drink to die? At 34. (laughs) Her mother, bitter and weary, turned her face to the wall and died at the age of 28. Eleanor was eight when her mother died, 10 when her father died. And for the rest of her life, she wanted to make things better for folks in want, in need, in trouble, folks just like her mother and father. And we get the stories we have about them from her. She forgave and she loved her father. After they died, she lived with her grandmother on a dreadful, dreary, big old house on the Hudson in Tivoli, 
where we don't know this from Eleanor Roosevelt, but we know this from some relative, three locks were installed on her door to keep out her uncles. What happened there? But we know that. We know it. And it just goes on across borders and class. I, too, assign for the first writing assignment in my classes. I teach a course at John Jay every semester when I'm at John Jay and not the Graduate Center. I alternate. A course called Violence and Social Change. And the first assignment is a family history. There is not a family, and we have students from 140 nations, there is not a family from anywhere, there is not a family from anywhere that doesn't have some kind of this kind of history in their history. And when I talk about Eleanor Roosevelt, and now I can talk also about Tina. It frees students up to deal with these hurts in the heart. And then there's the question of forgiveness. And then there's a question of how do we move on? And that brings us back to human rights. And there are two groups. There are many groups. You mentioned um, your is it Charlotte Bunch? No. I'm there is Charlotte Bunch and Rhonda Copeland and the women who are bringing women's issues to the International Criminal Court and to the International Court of Justice who are training judges in women's issues. And then there's the Center for Constitutional Rights. And then there is a group that I'm very fond of and it's a group called NESRI, N-E-S-R-I, the National Economic and Social Rights Initiative, founded by the women who've been working on global women's rights issues to bring the economic and social rights covenant to the fore in the United States. We've never even had a national conversation about that part of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And then, working with Nesri, there's another group. It's called Eagleherk, the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. And I've been very happy to attend and sometimes participate in Eagle Herc's ceremonies, where last year we gave an award to the woman who founded the Palestinian lesbian rights movement. How brave is that? And then there's Dirty Laundry in Israel-Palestine, a group of people who, this is a translation, your grandmother always said, don't hang out, you dirty laundry but they have created this movement for gay and lesbian rights. 
And so we're dealing with, in the face of all these fundamentalists and eccentrists that are running so much of the world, there are also these fabulous grassroots movements that we can be part of and that we are part of a new united front. A new united front that will take us with love as, and I think this is the message of Bettina's book, that will take us with love to a new level of activism for justice. Thank you very much. Let me just say that, um, like, you know, the other panelists, but I, I connect it's at different moments. Uh, and I, I, because of the fact that I first met Bettina when I was six or something like that, uh, we've connected in these various ways at, um, at uh, pivotal moments in our lives, as, as you can sort of see from the book. Uh, I... Um, I can also tell you that I participated in a number of discussions, uh, uh, sometimes very distressing conversations among former current members of the Communist Party. Um, and I suppose I've been, been particularly troubled by the extent to which people so readily turned down the invitation offered by this memoir to reflect and to remember. Um, and it's clear to me that even though even those who respond negatively uh, uh, and often participate in the conversation without ever having read the book, and there's a lot a lot of discussion that's happening uh, among people who don't bother to read the book because they assume they already know what the book is about, and that is it's about Herbert Aptaker, the pedophile, right? I mean, they assume that that... So it... it but at the same time, even, even those people are carrying forth... Um, invitations to reflect on uh, issuing them to other people to reflect on their, their histories, uh, and perhaps in a substantial way, and not in that very simplistic way. You know, one of the things that happens to me over and over again is that, uh, uh, and I'm sure people do the same thing to Bettina, they come up to me and they imagine me as somehow having been transported from the 60s, uh, you know, to the, like, and they say, they introduce themselves, and they say, and I come from the 60s, you know. <laughs> like, that's where we live. We both live in the same place. <laughs> um, but this, this, this memoir... Um, uh, allows us, uh, gives us, um, or mandates that we think about that period as being rife with so many contradictions, many of 
which are revealed in the book. Uh, uh, so it, it means that we, 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 we cannot uh, hold on to this nostalgic notion of that period as a kind of resting place. But you might, you might get the impression from the book that feminism becomes a resting place, a comfort zone. Um, and and I, don't think, I don't think that's the impression Bettina wanted to um, convey uh, because it is also a site of struggle. And, and, and I should say that from my experience in the party, uh, I saw that... Um, formation as a site of struggle, you know, not as a monolithic organization, but as people who were willing to fight over, struggle over, uh, uh, you know, all of these issues, including the, the role of, of, of women, uh, and including um, what counts as feminism. But it was also about community. It was also about figuring out how to create community that is not reducible to family. Uh, it, it, and, and in a sense, it was about, it was about creating alternative um, uh, relations, alternative social relations, in order not to have to rely on the family as uh, the only source of intimacy, as the only source uh, of um, compassion. And so I want to um, say that uh, as I conclude, wow, did I go that long? <laughs> oh, see, I told Gail to hold up her finger and let me know, uh, be the timekeeper. But I, I, I'll conclude by uh, saying thank you to Bettina. Um, thank you for offering um, this gift. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I really look forward to the discussion with the audience. Uh, thank you. Thank you.